If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. My guest for the full show today is Professor Gad Sad. Love Gad Sad. So happy to have him back with us. For years, Gad has been taking on the left exposing how young progressives are holding college campuses hostage with narrow-minded beliefs and an effort to kill common sense altogether. And he's in the middle of it because he's a college professor. So he's in the belly of the beast and nonetheless has maintained his passionate free speech advocacy. He's an absolutist when it comes to it. Recently, he has been speaking out passionately about the protests breaking out across Iran, where young Iranian schoolgirls are now managing to muster the courage to remove their headscarves and protest against a crackdown on women's rights. Think about that. I mean, it's crazy. They actually could get killed for this and they're doing it. Uh, Gad says moves like that are more dangerous than bombs to Iran's leaders. We'll also tackle the story of this is this is just I, I can't wait to talk about this story. The NYU students, the baby whiners who got their professor fired because he made organic chemistry too hard for them. Hello. (laughs) And what happened to another professor who dared to say there are only two biological sexes? So lots to discuss. Joining me now, Gad Sad. He is an evolutionary behavioral scientist and professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. He's also the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. And he hosts his own amazing podcast called The Sad Truth, Sad S-A-A-D, Truth. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. 
Welcome, Gad. Oh, so good to be with you, Megan. Before we begin, could I just do some spiritual house cleaning? Would that be okay? Let's go for it. Yeah. You do realize that today is the highest Jewish holiday where I'm supposed yeah. to be fasting, meditating about my <laughs> sins, a day of atonement. I have an open channel with God. I rejected God and came on the Megan Kelly show. I'm doomed. <laughs> I'm going to you know, hell forever. I, I knew you'd come because I remember in our first interview, you grew up in Lebanon. You were Jewish. You were raised Jewish. And I'm like, it's Yom Kippur can get. But you also told me you were an atheist. You understood the the importance of religion and and it subscribed to some of the philosophies of it. But you're not a religious man. Exactly. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, how could you be Jewish and, and be a non-believer? Probably 95% of the historical Jews that you might be able to mention off the top of your head were very Jewish in their identity and they weren't very you know, serious believers. So I think you know, being Jewish is a multi-attribute construct. I share a heritage with the people. I love, as you said, much of the philosophy in, in Jewish uh, thinking. And I can do all that and I can be very Jewish. I mean, no one has lived their Judaism more than I have in Lebanon, right? I had to escape execution because I'm Jewish. And yet yeah. I don't have to worry about, you know, lighting the candle at 721 rather than 722. Otherwise, God is going to be upset with me. So I have kind of a more uh, holistic view of Judaism rather than all the ritualistic parts. Well, I have to tell you, whenever we get to Yom Kippur, I always think as a Catholic, this is this is Judaism's best advertisement for becoming a Jew, because in Catholicism, we're supposed to go every week and confess our sins every <laughs> week. They want you in there. The Jews get to go one day a year, atone, fast, be together with friends and family, and then it's done. A whole year of sinning awaits. You go crazy and then cleanser, you know, cleansing will happen 365 days forward. I love the system. There's a lot of bad breaths in synagogue today. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why maybe I thought it was a good idea to come on the show. Rather, I mean, I'm telling you, you know, I, when you it's a full fast, by the way, in case some of your viewers and listeners don't know, it's not you could I mean, you can't brush your teeth. You can't do anything. Oh. So by about two oh, o'clock in teeth. the afternoon, it gets some some pretty nasty odors start emanating from all sorts of places. <laughs> yeah. What if we like kids? Can kids have like a little, you know, can they have something? Well, so I, I think I, I could be misspeaking, but I, if, if, if I remember correctly, I think you kids are only supposed to do the full fast starting at, you know, let's say for the boys when they have their bar mitzvah at 13. Mm, okay. So oftentimes what ends up happening, I don't know if that's theologically you know, prescribed, but oftentimes what happens practically is that at 10, 11 years old, they start doing exactly what you were hinting at. Maybe they do the fast till three in the afternoon, or maybe they, they drink a bit of water. But once you commit to doing it, it's all or nothing. It's deontological, as we might talk about later when we discuss Sam Harris. I don't I don't know how they how they do it. I mean, I look at my kids, um, you know, dresser, the 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 bureau in their room or the little table beside of their bed. You open it up to put away a book that's on the table, what have you. It's stocked with candy. I didn't know that it existed. It's like, there's no way my kids would hold off. I, I, I like the discipline of it. All right. So my kids, because they're mine and Doug's, will be raised tough and we will occasionally hurt their feelings and we will hold them to high standards of mental toughness and emotional toughness. And we won't raise them to be bullies, but we also won't raise them to be whiners. And that's what we have right now in Gen Z, a bunch of whiners as exhibited by no better story than this one. This thing out of NYU, Gad, is 
gold for you and for me today. So as I understand it, because before I was married to Doug, I was married to Dan, with whom I'm still friends. And Dan was a doctor and still is a very successful doctor down uh, down in Virginia. And so I was with Dan when he finished medical school, when he went through internship, when he went through residency, when he went through fellowship, uh, was at Hopkins, the whole bit. And I can tell you, just from my perch, it's all very hard. <laughs> it's all very challenging. And for very good reasons, the professors and the doctors and so on are not, they don't go easy on doctors in training because they want you and me to live when we come under these people's care. And they, it's very exacting. Not everybody makes it. And that's the way it should be. We don't want everyone to become a Navy SEAL or a doctor or a pilot. We want it to be extraordinary. Well, that was yesterday. At NYU, this professor just got fired because 82 of the 350 students in Maitland Jones Jr.'s organic chemistry class felt it was too challenging. They were upset that organic chemistry was too hard. So instead of looking inward and saying, maybe I should have studied a little harder, why, why did all the other students manage to get through it? Why is it just the 82 of us? These are the losers. These are the dum-dums. These are the people who couldn't hack it. That's the truth. Instead of accepting that or doubling down, they decided to come after this guy, filed a complaint with the university. Um, here are a couple of the items. I, I mean, my notes in, in the margin read, OMG, OMG, barf, snot-nosed children. <laughs> they are mad because uh, their grades were too low. They were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school, given. They were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school. That he had a condescending and demanding tone, Gad and that he failed to make their learning and well-being a priority. <laughs> All right, so what do you make of it? Because they just, and why you oh, fired the boy. guy. Oh, I've got so much to say about this. Uh, first, I'll say you probably know the concept of anti-fragility, which was kind of popularized by a good friend of mine, also Lebanese author Nassim Talib, in a book that he wrote on anti-fragility, right? I mean, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger is exactly the colloquial term for anti-fragility, which is we expect to be challenged with stressors. For example, our immune system works best when we are exposed to allergens, right? Kids who grow up with pet dander, who grow up on farms, end up having lesser respiratory ailments than kids who grow up in sterile environments, precisely because your immune system expects to be triggered, right? So I argue in the parasitic mind that our critical thinking expects the same thing. In order for you to develop good critical thinking abilities, you have to be put through the test. So resilience, grit, anti-fragility are truly important things for you to have optimal living. So the idea that something is too hard. Look, I studied mathematics. I studied uh, computer science. I, you know, I did a thesis in operations research, which is a field in applied mathematics. I never had someone complain that you know mathematics was too hard. We had to dumb it down. So this is really a reflection of the zeitgeist that we see today. I'll mention two other quick personal stories. One that just happened recently. So this semester, I'm teaching an undergraduate class on my you know evolutionary consumption stuff, and I'm teaching an MBA course, uh, a seminar on consumer behavior. Uh, several students dropped out of the first class, which, you know, I, I jokingly said when I came into the next week's course, you know, I can't believe that uh, students would drop my course. What kind of irrational decision is that? And then someone yeah. said to me, Professor, I don't want you to 
be offended by this, but a lot of them dropped because you exuded an air of toughness. I said, well, what do you mean? And then he said, well, in your course outline, you clearly stated that you will not alter the schedule of the evaluative exercises to suit every MBA student's idiosyncratic schedule. And a lot of students were offended by that. Gee, I mean, so I shouldn't, I should not say the exam is going to be held on October 12th. I should alter the dates of the exams to fit each student's travel plans. <laughs> so that was one story that speaks to your point. The, the second one is one from when I was way back at, uh, so I did my PhD at Cornell and there's a, there's a, a point at which in your in your doctorate you have to do what's called the the comprehensive exam. This is where your committee could ask you any question on any of the fields that they're covering. So if I have a professor from statistics who's on my doctoral committee, that professor could ask me anything in statistics, anything in psychology of decision making. So I walked into that uh, that uh, uh, exam thinking that, you know, my, my committee member, they're very friendly, they're very sweet. Well, I walk in, it was as if I was facing a completely different beast. They were all very curt. They were all quite combative. And then when they asked me to step out of the room so that they can de deliberate my fate, and then they asked me back in, everybody was smiley. They congratulated me mm -hmm. for having defended my dissertation proposal and so on. So I looked at my supervisor and I said to him, what the F, Jay? I actually talk about this in my next book. And he looked at me and smiled and said, well, that was just some good old fashioned Ivy League butt kicking. It will make a man out of you. So they they weren't there to coddle me. They weren't there to hug me and caress me. They knew that I was going to go on the speaking circuit, applying for professorship where the audience was going to be very tough. And so they made sure that they put me through the baptism by fire. And I have nothing but thanks for them today. So those kids that you spoke about at NYU, are little whiners. Yes, and they want to be future doctors. Or There's only one reason to take organic chemistry, and that is because you want to go to medical school. The rest of us sane humans choose never to touch that kind of a subject. Um, so it is, it's used as sort of a weeder. It weeds out the weak historically from those who can make it into medical school and through medical school and as a doctor and those who cannot. And so if you are the, one of the loser 82 students who didn't do well in this class, you should take the message accordingly. You're a loser. You can't do it. You should consider another field. Not all of us can do it. I get it. When it comes to medicine, I'm a loser too. I couldn't make that. However, if, it, and by the way, I did have a similar experience just in high school where it was the only class I ever got a C in, chemistry. I did well in everything other than that, chemistry, I got a C in. And you know what I realized? This isn't my thing. I didn't go blame the professor. I didn't say the testing's too hard. I said that I've struggled with this from the beginning. It's not my thing. I get it. These students, Gad, this is to, to your point about what your students who dropped your class complained about. They're mad that the professor reduced the number of midterm exams from three to two flattening their chances to compensate for their low grades. <laughs> like he owes them a certain number of tests. By the way, he says that, that given the schedule of the university, that would have had the first exam be way too soon in the, in the season. They say um, he didn't offer extra credit. Why, why must a professor offer extra credit at all? That's just get a good grade on the tests that are offered. You're not entitled to a chance for extra. Um, and then they criticized his tone, among other things. And here's where, here's what happened. They didn't ask that he be fired, but they wanted this to be addressed. So the, so the university and, and the guy, by the way, the professor, Dr. Jones and two others had already taped 52 organic chemistry lectures to make it easier on these kids during the pandemic saying, we get it. 
Maybe tough for you. You can watch these at any time. He paid five grand out of his own pocket so that they could have this. Wasn't enough. Um, they wanted more help and they kept giving him more, they're giving them more help. But this professor saying these students seemed disengaged and they weren't coming to class. They weren't watching the videos and they weren't able to answer the questions. And so instead of backing their professor, Gad, the university turfed him, noting that um, the people who pay the bills of, you know, who gets into these schools uh, didn't weren't going to like these results. So basically, they're worried about their bottom line and their U.S. News and World and Report ranking. You know, I, I'll, I'll tell you uh, uh, two other. Obviously, since I'm a professor, I can I'm, thank you for choosing that topic, because I can, of course, speak with, with great ease about it, although with some pain. I get more nervous and, and I'm hardly someone who who easily is, is you know, frazzled. Uh, I get more nervous when I have to kind of hold my breath after I post the grades of the of the semester than I do coming on Megan Kelly's show or going on Gutfeld, right? Like in other words, it, I'm not in the least bit phased in appearing in front of millions of people. Now, I, I may be over-exaggerating. It's not as though I'm, I'm in a fetal position, you know, sucking my thumb and crying when I post my grades, but I'm really ruining the fact that there will be a few students whom I'll have to engage with and I'll have to explain why. Well, you know, the reason why you received zero on participation because you never participated in the class. So what is it that you expected other than zero? But that's not fair, sir. I was there in spirit. You know, I really love your class. I re but yes, but the, the I was grading you on participation and you never participated. So I can't make up a grade. Just like if I go see my physician and he gives me a cholesterol score, I don't negotiate for a better cholesterol score. It is what it is. And, yeah. But that's the kind of stuff that we have. And it's it, frankly, it it really gnaws at you. And uh, it's it's one of the reasons where sometimes I look at my wife and I say, how much longer can I be doing this teaching yeah. stuff? Yes. Well, I will also say to, to object to tone being condescending. I mean, good luck becoming any sort of a professional, right? When I practice law, do you think opposing counsel's tone is always appropriate and a judge is never, quote, condescending? Get used to it if you want to be in any sort of meaningful profession or challenging professional uh, life. Doctors, are you kidding me? The, the abuse that was heaped on my first ex-husband in these you know, residencies and fellowships, which were some of the best in the world, it's like a club. It's like a fraternity that they have to go through. And it's, it's all designed toward an end purpose. You have to be tough you, to be a doctor. You, there's it's intensely stressful with all sorts of pressures raining down on you and split second decisions that are potentially life saving or life ending that you have to make. And you've got to be somebody who can withstand an enormous shitstorm around you and still be able to function and function at a high level in order to be a successful doctor. These students want to change the whole system, Gad. No. The system wants to be it needs to be kinder. Well, that's not how an ER works. You can't tell the heart attack to hold off. You can't tell the stroke victim to wait two minutes until you're done with your latte. You know, decisions have to be made under high pressure circumstances. And so while I'm all in favor of a kinder world, this is not the way it's not going to work for these demanding professions. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention two two quick things. Number one, it actually gets worse than what you're suggesting, Megan, because many medical schools now, since we're talking about you know future possible physicians, many medical schools are removing grades and it's turning into pass and fail 
The argument precisely being that it is so stressful to go to medical school that why add the extra burden of having these students compete with each other and be graded? So that speaks exactly to your point. The second one I wanted to make is, is, is one that's uh, more psychological. Uh, what's happening with these students is something that we often see in psychology called the fundamental attribution error, which is, do you attribute successes and failures internally or externally? And what most people do is that they attribute successes internally. I did well on the exam because I'm very smart. And they attribute failures externally. I did poorly on the exam because the professor at NYU is an asshole. And so they're succumbing exactly to that attributional style. So rather than having personal agency, whereby they're well calibrated about whether it is due to their failings that they are not doing well or not, it's easy to put it on the broad shoulders of the nasty professor. So it's exactly what I would have expected if you understand psychology. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Corinne Jean-Pierre, who was asked by Peter Ducey yesterday about the fact that gas prices are going back up and said you wanted us to give President Biden credit when the gas prices were coming down. Now that they're going back up, should he take responsibility? And she it's said, Putin. well, it's more nuanced than that. It's more nuanced. The 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 rise is nuanced. The the fall, that's all on Biden. And um, yeah, these students, I mean, the New York Times in writing up this story says the following. The entire controversy seems to illustrate a sea change in teaching from an era when professors set the bar and expected the class to meet it to the current more supportive student centered approach. They basically mean taking a knee to the whiners and catering to the lowest, weakest common denominator. Their weakness and patheticness, I find abhorrent. I, I, I look uh, to bring it out of the educational system, but to speak of the same point, I often get upset if my children who both play competitive soccer, uh, if they're going to go to a tournament and they get some sort of trophy or medal and they didn't win I, I you know i'm i'm the parent who says you know go back and return it you didn't earn Same. it so Into i despise garbage. that zeitgeist of coddling i mean yes be supportive of your students be supportive of your children but teach them how to be tough because the world out there is not all about hugs and kisses well it's crazy because they're they're trying to proceed as though Everyone's always going to coddle these students. And as I say, you can chastise, you know, attending physicians all you want into being nicer and so on. Life is what it is. Medicine is a very demanding profession. It's extremely stressful. I saw it very close up for many, many years. So is law. There's like there's so many professions where you just don't have the time to coddle someone. I mean, my staff knows I'm not a coddler. If you need that, go work for somebody else. I, you, you shouldn't have chosen to work for me, right? Like certain things you get out of being in this position, but coddling is not one of them. And I just, there's not enough jobs to take care of people like this. All right, let me switch the issue a bit because you're very outspoken on a lot of these third rail issues. One of the many things we love about you and you're hilarious as hell. You're so funny. You like, you don't care. You not, you not only take on these issues, but you're completely irreverent you know, from BLM and the race stuff to the, the trans stuff. Well, listen to what happened to this other professor. This is University of Southern Maine, okay, in Portland, Maine, an associate professor of education. And she's gotten all these awards, including an anti-racism anti award and so on. Um, she had the nerve to say only two biological sexes exist. Now, this is just a, de a day ending in Y for you, Gats. You better hope these standards don't make their way up to Toronto. Um, 
they uh, she she said only two biological sexes exist. And the way it went down is so perfect. The way she got in trouble for it there. They had a free for all discussion about it. Uh, social gender and biological sex identifications. One student and this professor, Professor uh, Hammer, Christy Hammer, said they believed only male and female biological se- sexes exist. One student who is non-binary, Elizabeth, who goes by they, wasn't even there, <laughs> but learned about it later. Elizabeth arrived at the next class and decided to proactively bring up the discussion again. I asked Professor Hammer how many sexes there were, said Elizabeth. The professor said two. I felt under personal attack. <laughs> okay, you, te- you teed it up. You knew exactly what you're going to get. Now suddenly we're supposed to feel sorry for you. Uh, Elizabeth then gathered their things. We have to use the their pronoun. I can't. Hers, his, pick one. Walked out of the class because Elizabeth no longer felt respected. Uh, I let her know I didn't think she was qualified to teach a class about positive learning environments. It's the ultimate, ultimate irony. Um, that now she, Elizabeth is demanding the professor do some diversity training. There was a struggle session demanded for the professor and for the student who supported the professor. And that single student was basically browbeaten into changing her position. Uh, and now the university is siding against this professor by allowing students to take a different class. Um, trying to figure out exactly what they did. They said, you can go, you can leave the class. We're not going to replace this professor. We've developed an alternative plan where you can go to this new section of the course for students who want to get away from this evil professor. (laughs) Uh, Or the original section taught by Professor Hammer will continue for any student who just happens to find her tolerable. I mean, it's, it's beyond parody. So I, I, I hate to be the guy who says to the world, I warned you and I told you so, but here I am to say that. Uh, in 2017, both Jordan Peterson and, and I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate, and you can go watch my testimony uh, in front of the Canadian Senate on my YouTube channel. Just enter my name and enter Canadian Senate and it'll pop up where we were trying to argue that, so there was a bill at the time that, was, that hadn't passed yet, Bill C-16 that was seeking to incorporate gender identity and gender uh, expression under the rubric of hate crimes. And we were asked to come, you know, to speak about this matter. And of course, while we both support the right of all people to live free of bigotry, we we had some warnings. We, we had some sort of slippery slope arguments that we were proposing. In my case, I won't speak for Jordan, I exactly predicted the, the, the example that you just described. And I, I used my own field of study to highlight the point. I said, look, I study evolutionary psychology. I apply it in various fields, including in consumer behavior. One of the things that you know, defines evolutionary processes is a mechanism that Darwin explained back in 1871 called sexual selection, which that, that's the, the evolution of traits or more you know, of, of behavioral patterns that very much recognize that in a sexually reproducing species, there is a male phenotype and a female phenotype. So let's say I walk into class senators and I start lecturing the area that I'm an expert in, in evolutionary behavioral sciences and so on. Could I be committing some kind of yeah. hate thing under you know, the Bill C-16? And you should have seen the way they were 
mocking me and and scoffing at me, really in a in a truly grotesque orgiastic manner. One of the senators even said to me, "You know, you are promoting genocide with this language that you're you're using." To which I answered, "You might wow. want to be careful of not accusing someone who escaped execution in the Middle East of genocide in such a flippant manner." So you can go and watch this whole interaction. I but you know, that. so this doesn't surprise me in the least bit because you know these dreadful bad ideas, hence I discussed them as idea pathogens in the parasitic mind, ultimately have consequences. We could all be for transgender activism without murdering and raping truth uh, you know, as a as a collateral to that noble pursuit, right? So I can be all mm -hmm. for transgender rights while also scoffing at the idea that men too can menstruate, right? I could chew gum and walk at the same time. I could support transgender rights without ever ceding a millimeter of the truth. And what's happening with that university in Maine is that they're unable to do those things. In their pursuit of coddling transgender rights, all logic goes out the window. It's grotesque. The thing, like, it's a it's become a punchline. I feel attacked. You know, it's become a punchline. And this student actually tried to manufacture a circumstance in which Elizabeth could say it. Elizabeth wanted to feel attacked. The whole thing was a setup to get the professor and it worked. The university, rather than exercising, you know, its judgment using the brain cells that exist within the administration and saying, you set the professor up. This is what's real. You can talk about gender all day long, but biological sex, there are two. That's a fact. That's a scientific. And rather than doing that, they, they put the professor through the ringer. They let all these students withdraw and shame on the, on the students who did that. And by the way, back on the NYU thing, Gad, you tell me, but I think all those 82 students, I want somebody to leak their names. I hope somebody at NYU makes their names public so that we can make sure that we never Go to them if they wind up becoming doctors. I'm not going to those losers. I don't want them. I only wow. want a Gen X doctor. I don't want a Gen Z doctor. I want somebody who had to go through it the way my first husband did. Not these little daisies who couldn't withstand one hard class. Yeah, uh, you are a honey badger, madam. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely the case. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure from an ethical perspective. I mean, I guess it varies across different universities. I don't know if it would be a good idea to necessarily, uh, you know, shame them and name them. But I, I get, I get, I certainly get your instinct. You want to be able to weed out the the the, the whinies from the the people who are able, who are going to be able to withstand the pressures. So I, I mm -hmm. get the instinct. There might be some ethical issue, issues to consider, but but I hear you. Not as a journalist, there might be an ethical issue for those who choose to r release it. But as a journalist, I'd have absolute no qualms <laughs> in telling people who these whiners are. If you're if you are that whiny in your organic chemistry class, you deserve to be publicly shamed. And then let us make the decision about whether you should be our doctor. Um, I'm sure there's going to be NYU med school trying to give them, you know, a, a leg up to getting into that school, too. I, I don't even know where to go. Like, you got to go. I don't know. There's not even a med school now that uh, that I could think of. There's not like a Liberty version of med school or a um, Hillsdale version of med school. I don't think I have to look into it in any event. All right. Stand by, because when we come back, we've got to show you the video of the day with Gad. Last time he was here, we showed you a video of him hiding under his desk and he's done another one and it's just as good. Um, you don't want to miss it. Stand by. That's next. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm OK. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 
988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Gad, where are you? Where are you, sweetie? I can't find you. Shh, be quiet. Oh, oh. Be quiet, they're coming for you. <gasps> Why? The Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And what now is going to happen is women are no longer safe in the United States. Why aren't you hiding under the desk with me? Come under the desk. Come on. I hear them coming. Okay, bye, ciao. Bye. <laughs> I am hilarious. You are hilarious. This is what I mean. It's not just that you touch the third rails. So you've got the big middle finger up at the third rail topics and the conventional wisdom on how we need to talk about them. It's not very sensitive of you, Gad. <laughs> Did you miss? I, I thought you were going to actually show my most recent hiding under the desk. You need to go and watch it. You need to catch up on <laughs> God what? World. Because it was when uh, Meloni became prime minister of Italy and all the super smart progressives said that she's indistinguishable from a melange of Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. So I did a clip where I hid under the desk, but I did the whole clip in Italian because I now want to blend in because she's going to take over <laughs> Canada. And so she doesn't send me to the gulags. I, I did the whole thing in Italian. You need to go watch it. Oh my, that's very impressive. Parli Italiano? Uh, Franco Baresi è la capitano della squadra azzurra, un giocatore molto peligroso. <laughs> I caught about every other word of that. That's impressive. All right, I need to see that. Yes, Cristina Maloney is the new uh, Mussolini. Just ask Politico or the AP or Axios or anybody who's written about her. Um, yeah, so you you touch it all and you're unafraid. And one of these days, I think your prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is going to find you under that desk, Gad, because he's gone a different <laughs> way. He doesn't he doesn't really share your view of being PC or non PC. And we used to make fun of him on this show for trying to say the LGBT blah, 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 and he can't he couldn't get it out. Um, actually, let's just play that before we show you his new way of approaching the issue where he couldn't quite say it. It's soundbite one. I will never apologize for standing up for an LGDP, uh, LGT, LBG, LGBTQ two plus uh, kids rights. <laughs> it's one of our favorites. So he's decided to give it another shot. And, and apparently he does get it out. OK, but it's expanded because LGBTQ is never enough. You got to add more, 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 more letters if you want to be super, super, super woke. And here's the latest. Listen. Since day one, our government has been committed to protecting the rights of two spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and additional sexuality and gender diverse people. That's why I'm so excited today to announce a historic first, the launch of Canada's first ever 2SLGBTQI plus action plan. Oh my God. Gad. I, I mean, I, I'll read it again. Two-spirit, that is not a thing. Okay, first of all, that's not a thing. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex. Again, queer. Like, what is it? That's all encompassing. They don't get a letter. Uh, intersex. All right. I guess that is a thing. And additional sexuality and gender diverse people. Gender diverse people. Isn't what? Are, like, what's gender diverse other than LGBTQ? 
right? Like, isn't it already? What's why additional sexuality? How does that get in there? Two SLGBTQ one plus action. I can't. <laughs> you know, as I watch him and I've seen those clips a million times and regrettably, I live in the hotbed <laughs> of Trudeau land. I live in Canada. Uh, he exudes nothing but inauthenticity, falsity, cowardice. It's just it's it amazes me that Canadians could be so parasitized that they actually have now voted for him three times. Now, of course, we have a parliamentary system whereby to say that he won three times turns out to be that he he won roughly 30 percent of uh, the pop, you know, because of the parliamentary system with only 30 percent of, you know, winning the ridings, you can mm. be the majority uh, party. So it just amazes me that what you and I see so clearly with our eyes and ears, so many people are hoodwinked. Now, many people have written to me over the past seven years since he's been in office to say, you know, you were right along about him. But what I always wonder is, what is it that originally you couldn't see about him that Megan Kelly could see or I could see? I remember when you, I don't know if it was when I came on your show or when you came on mine, where you said something to the effect of, you know, you don't want this guy in the bedroom. He couldn't, you know, yes. he couldn't get the, the, the job done. That's no. what he exudes to me. Falsity, weakness, effeminate, if, cowardly. So it really is one of those great mysteries as to why people uh, still like him. I know you you just know, like if the future of the human race depends upon men like that procreating, we don't have long. It's not it's not going to end well. It's almost over. We need more. It won't be climate change. It will be Trudeau coupling that will end the human race. <laughs> it's true because you first approach him and you're like, oh, he's an attractive. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get into you. I want to talk about Gadsad and I want to talk about things like evolutionary psychology. You were saying you want to talk about evolutionary consumption. This is your area of expertise, but I'm sure our audience is like, what the hell is it? So what the hell is it? Right. Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, so evolutionary psychology is basically the application of the evolutionary lens to the study of the human mind. So in the same way that we can use evolution to explain why our liver works the way that it does or why we have opposable thumbs, we can apply the framework of evolution to say, why do we experience romantic jealousy? Why are we drawn to porn consumption? What is it that makes women dress differently as a function of where they are in their ovulatory cycle? I think we discussed this last time I was on your show. Yeah. So Evolutionary psychology basically has a few important tenets, and it might be worth for me to kind of drill down on them. Number one, evolutionary psychologists recognize that we are not born with empty minds, meaning tabula rasa. There are biological imperatives that we're born into the world with. So for example, young children who are too young to have been socialized to prefer you know, beautiful faces already are attracted more to facially symmetric features. So that's a built-in mechanism that no socialization caused. It, you're already coming into the world equipped with that pension. So number one, evolutionary psychologists recognize that we are not born tabula rasa, minds. Number two, evolutionary psychologists argue that the human mind is made up, sorry, I'm going to say some a mouthful here and then I'll explain it, mm. that the human mind is made up of domain-specific computational systems, meaning that in the same way that the liver solves a different problem than the heart, well, the human mind is made up of an amalgamation of systems, each of which evolved to solve a specific evolutionary problem, find mate, retain mate, avoid predators, build coalitions, invest in kin, seek 
uh, caloric foods. So each mm. of those evolutionarily important systems would have necessitated the evolution of a specific computational system in your mind. So that's why when we talk about evolutionary psychology, we talk about the Swiss army knife metaphor, right? Because the Swiss army knife is made up of many different blades and each blade solves a specific function that can't be transferred to something else. If you want to use the blade to pull out the cork of the wine bottle, you can't use that to cut warm butter. You use a different blade for that. So that's the, another important tenet of evolutionary psychology. Now, what I do at my work is I take the framework of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, and then I say, can I identify the vestiges of that evolutionary process in the modern world and our consumatory behavior. So if we're attracted to certain song lyrics or if we, uh, if our hormones change as a function of buying this product or that product. So I did, for example, a study, which I don't think I talked about last time I was on your show, where I showed that if you put young men in an actual Porsche and you have them drive around or you put them in a beaten up old car, they're, they're, testosterone levels literally track that jump in status. Put me in a, in a Porsche and my endocrinological system, you know, blows up, put me in another, in a, you know, low status car. And then the same thing, the opposite thing will happen. And so what I basically do is I marry evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology with consumer behavior and hence the field of evolutionary consumption. So this is reminding me of the low birth count that we're facing now in our country, maybe in Canada too. And there's been, you know, an alarm sounded that we're just not having babies the way we used to and the future of humanity kind of depends on it. Uh, and it, I'm tying it together now based on what you said with a discussion we had on the show earlier this week about Olivia Wilde's new movie, which is a man bashing film and how it's all in vogue now to bash men. She she decided Jordan Peterson would be the villain of her new film. Why? Because Jordan Peterson appeals to a lot of these young, disaffected men who've been told over and over again that they're worthless, that they're second class citizens, that they're terrible, they're toxic. And men, the studies show, don't reach out for mental health assistance. They just don't do it. So they go to somebody like Jordan Peterson. They listen to his videos or so on. Next thing you know, they're featured in an Olivia Wilde film and they're getting called demons by this woman. OK, all of this is being relegated to a low status car. Men have been put in a low status car by women like Olivia Wilde now by our society for quite some time. And it's having an actual palpable effect in relationships in reproduction, right? I mean, low sperm count, all this, it seems related. Oh, 100%. So first, let me mention your your point about Olivia Wilde versus Jordan Peterson. I When I first heard of it, I right away released a clip, uh, you know, on my channel uh, where I was, uh, you know, chastising her for, you know, for being so obnoxious because, I mean, Jordan Peterson is a, as, as you may know, is a very good friend of mine. And he's none of the things that she says. And, and you know, being the person that I am, I see that I just get pissed off. I'm not someone who walks away. And so I, I just can't believe that someone like her could arrive to such a position about Jordan. The only thing I can think of is that she's never read a single thing he's ever written or watched mm -hmm. a single clip that he's ever uh, posted because he's none of the things that she she argues. But to your greater point about, you know, uh, how we're bashing men. Look, there is a natural dynamic between men and women. Uh, we're not talking hashtag me too moments, but you know, men do chase women. Men, men do seduce women. You know, you sometimes have to be a bit persistent before the 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 lady says, you know what, you, you seem charming enough now. I'll go out with you. I mean, 
the entire country of Italy would be outlawed if you know if every time you approach a woman and give her a compliment, that's a form of verbal rape. We need to outlaw all of Italy because we know that the Italians are stereotypically famous seducers. So, so the idea that you know anything that a man does, even approaching a woman and complimenting her if she doesn't want that compliment, becomes a form of sexual violence. By the way, I'm not being hyperbolic. I just before I, I left to I, I went to do a, a show in New York City a few days ago. Prior to leaving to New York, I had to redo my mandatory sexual training mandated by my university because until they taught me how to speak to women, I didn't know how to you know navigate the world. So imagine how offensive it is that I'm I'm now 57 years old. I'm, I've been a professor for almost 30 years. I can't remain a professor. I'm a tenured professor. I was a chair professor, a full professor. I have to take a, a, a you know a training that tells me things like if you see a student complimenting another student and they're you know the the the, the student who receives the compliment is you know it feels uncomfortable by it. Is that a form of sexual violence? Yes or no? Now, of course. I have to say yes, otherwise I can't go on to the next slide. So that's the kind of world that we are creating. And not surprisingly, a lot of men are feeling disenfranchised, thrown to the curb. And it it, it doesn't help society in trying to elevate women. We pathologize the other half of our human species called men. It's a suboptimal strategy. Mm, let's just spend a minute on Olivia Wilde and Jordan Peterson, since you do know sure. him. And, and uh I had forgotten that actually, because you're Canadian, he's Canadian, you're both professors in Canada for a long, long time and, and fighting similar fights. So naturally you would be drawn together. She actually had the nerve to call him a pseudo intellectual. <laughs> she, Olivia Wilde, who uh, she didn't go to college, which is fine. A lot of smart people don't go to college. But Jordan Peterson, um, she, he taught at Harvard, uh, taught at uh, University of Toronto. Um, he's lectured all over the world. He's, he's, he's gotten, a very accomplished uh, academic who's published quite a few papers. Right. So like the nerve of some Hollywood twit who's done literally nothing other than act in front of the camera and try to be beloved and now is doing a stint behind it to look at someone as accomplished as he is and say, you're a pseudo intellectual and try to demonize him, uh, as you point out, could only come from, well, a ignorance not just of who he is, but also from of all of his work, right? This is, she hasn't listened to anything he said or written or read anything he's written. It, it, so, and let, if I may share a personal story about Jordan, I was walking with a good friend of mine. I, I won't mention any more details about him, but he's also a psychologist. And he was telling, he, he knows that Jordan and I are good friends. And he said, you know, I had a very strange interaction with a colleague of mine. She's a very nice, lovely woman, very, you know, has a lot of empathy. She's very compassionate. And we were chatting and the topic of Jordan Peterson came up and she was telling me, this is him telling me the story. She was telling him that she's developing this kind of murderous rage towards Jordan, even though she doesn't know him and she hates herself for it because she somehow thinks that, you know, she's a very compassionate person that would have otherwise not been capable of, you know, feeling such feelings. And yet she can't explain why she hates him so badly. And then I asked him, well, did you, did you try to, you know, probe her as to why she hates? She said, well, he's just such a menace and a danger to society, that that's the only way that she can justify why she has murderous rage towards him. 
I know the guy. I've had dinner with the guy. We've we've been friends for many years. He's none of those things. So it shows you what happens to a person. I hate to plug the book again, where they're parasitized by idiocy. Even intelligent people can become babbling fools. Well, to what extent, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, are Trump's characteristics, which are traditionally masculine, I don't know what other way, how else to call them, um, how else to describe them. To what extent do you think that's playing in the reaction that the elusive suburban Republican women had to him? Look, uh, I, I talk about this point uh, and I'm, I'm trying to look. I'm, this is a prop that I'm going to bring into our show. Maybe the first prop you've ever had on the show. It? It's a memory stick, but let's for a moment assume that it were a uh, a cork of a wine bottle. There is an expression in Arabic that says getting drunk simply by smelling the, the cork of the wine bottle, meaning that you are of such weak constituency that you don't even need to drink the wine to get drunk. Now, how am I going to mm -hmm. relate this to your Trump question? People judge Trump or say Obama not on central cues. Here are my views on his monetary or fiscal policy. Rather, Obama, look, I'm going to get drunk now. I'm going to get drunk on the Obama court. Obama is lanky. He has a radiant smile. He has a mellifluous voice. Therefore, I love him. He's the prophet. Obama, uh, Trump, on the other hand, look, he's disgusting. He's cantankerous. He speaks like an eighth grader from Queens. He's grotesque, right? That's exactly why our super smart friends hate Trump and love Obama. Mm. So uh, so basically, it's it's the... it's. It's their emotional system that's hijacking their cognitive system rather than being able to have a conversation whereby they justify why they love or hate Trump. It's a, it's a visceral feeling. It's an emotional system. I just despise him. He's disgusting. He's an aesthetic injury. And that's not the way that you should be choosing presidents. And it can work the other way, too. It can work to Trump's advantage. Maybe they smell the cork, uh, you know, some men and, and they smell something lovely. <laughs> There's another saying in Arabic that you used about Dr. Fauci that I want to ask you. This is like a foreign language. So now we've gone into Italian, Arabic um, and Dr. Fauci's back in the news today. He just gave an interview, which uh, once again, I mean, it's classic Fauci. I'm going to ask you about it and ask you for your Arabic saying about Dr. Fauci when we come back right after this. Gadsad is staying with us for the whole show today. Lucky us. And don't forget, folks, you can find this show, The Megyn Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. And the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, which is on fire right now. Please join us. Uh, YouTube.com slash Megyn Kelly. If you prefer an audio podcast, you can follow and download wherever you want. Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher had some complaints that on the Apple podcast, people were hearing like the phrases repeat. I went back and listened. I heard it too, but we haven't had that issue at any place other than Apple. But if you are one of those people, email me and let me know. You can reach me now at MeganKelly.com. Megan at MeganKelly.com for my specific email. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So before we move off of your area of expertise in particular, Gad, can we talk about a couple of stories in the news? Because I just wonder, today there are two stories of two superstar couples, kind of three if you if you think about it. But anyway, the first two, and this is, I don't, I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. The first is Tom Brady and Giselle, who have now reportedly hired divorce lawyers, respectively. They are reporting, this is of course not confirmed, but the New York Post and others are reporting that um, it stemmed from at least one massive argument they had over his refusal to stay retired. And she commented publicly that she felt she had been on more in a subservient role, uh, took herself off the professional front lines. She's obviously the world's most successful supermodel for you know most of her young 20s. Um, and she felt she felt she used the term. It's my turn. And that he reversed his decision. It's going back into football and so on. So now these two are getting a divorce, according to the papers. And I wonder, it's no accident they found each other, two of the most beautiful people on earth, two of the biggest careers on earth. And I think some would say it's no accident it's going to end because two careers that big and two personalities that big, it's tough. It's tough for them to stay, stay together long term. What do you make of it? Of course, I'm entering complete speculation land, but it, you know, statistically speaking, uh, that seems to be an unlikely reason that they would have broken up. I, I think the num the top two reasons why people break up is usually because of financial, uh, you know, conflict or infidelity. Now, infidelity is a much more of a of a death blow if a woman cheats on a man than vice versa. Not because of the patriarchy, but because when a woman cheats on a guy, it triggers paternity uncertainty from an evolutionary perspective. Mm. Whereas uh, when when a when a uh, man cheats on a, a woman, it's not quite the same thing. That's why, by the way, if I can just go back to evolutionary psychology, women get m more triggered and more angry and more jealous by emotional infidelity rather than mm -hmm. sexual infidelity. That doesn't mean that they're happy if uh, their their man sleeps around with other women but if he develops a platonic emotional bond with his co-worker she laughs at his jokes she understands his life goals and they're always uh, chatting with each other and texting but they've never had sex that might actually be a greater precursor of them splitting because emotional infidelity is the greatest threat to a, to a woman's uh, interest so oh, my feeling that. is that it's not because it, it's i'm sorry say again I can see that. I can see it. It's like I'm thinking about my own husband. I, I'd much rather he have a one night stand with a woman than sit and cry with her. There you go. And so uh, I think that probably there is something else happening. Maybe, uh, you know, he cheated on her. She cheated on her. It's, it's certainly not financial issues that that's causing mm -hmm. the rift. So mm -hmm. my feeling is it's not what they're saying. There's no other way that I can speculate as to what's the mm, real cause. That's interesting. I don't know. They, they, and just so the audience knows what I'm talking about, the other big story is Angelina and Brad Pitt back in the news. There was this 2016 plane ride, and now she's adding details to what she said was previously said was an abusive plane ride in which he got very, very drunk and allegedly hurt her. Now he's claiming that he 
She's claiming he allegedly choked one of their children on board this flight. Um, these two are in a very, very ugly, ongoing uh, marital wrap up dispute. Um, it just never ends. And it, it's to me, again, it's a reminder that, you know, we look at these the lifestyles of the rich and famous and think they must be better than ours. And they're not. They're not by a long shot. You, you've kind of set me up. I, I don't want to talk too much about the next book because I want people to sort of be excited to, to, to you know, hopefully. Can we pre-order it? In, uh, not yet. I think oh, probably. Okay. okay. So you really shouldn't talk too yes. much about it. I, I won't. But I, I, what I'll say one thing, because I've said it in the past publicly, uh, one of the things that I talk about is that uh, choosing the right spouse to, to, the, to the extent that you can actually use particular strategies to ensure that they are the right spouse, choosing the right spouse and the right profession is either going to impart great happiness to you or great uh, misery. I, I, I don't want to speak for, for you, because I, but although I know that you're in a very happy marriage with your husband, Doug, but I can mm -hmm. speak for myself. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm able to take on the world the way that I do is that I know that when I come home, I have a, 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 a place of solace that is very much driven by the love that my wife and I have for each other. And so if you wish to be happy, make sure to, to marry the right person. And certainly celebrities are no better than the rest of us at choosing the right spouse. I, w I think it's almost a danger. You know, people who are drawn to that life, the Hollywood lifestyle, not all of them, but a lot of them have a big hole inside that they're trying to fill. And then they find out the hard way that becoming a star, becoming rich doesn't fill it. And so, you know, they 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 kind of look for love in all the wrong places, is what I'm saying. And then and then if you're unhappy and you don't deal with it, and you try to put a bandaid on it by earning more money or becoming a big star, you're you're headed to it for a big crash and burn. So I, I feel like they have a higher divorce rate than than Gen Pop. And um, I, I would probably agree with you. Yes. Yeah. OK, so that's uh, marriage advice from Gadsad and Megyn Kelly. Uh, don't marry a Hollywood person and um, don't cheat. And if you're a man, if you feel you must cheat, please make it a one night sexual stand instead of laughing and crying with another woman. <laughs> Are you hearing wife? Megyn Kelly said it's OK. <laughs> Was that your wife in the video we saw of you? It is. The one who, yeah. OK. So I love that you work together. Um, yeah. Now, you recently had COVID. Have you had COVID I once did. or twice? I, once. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, literally, I think it was three days before COVID hit the sad shore. Uh, well, I was driving with my entire family. I think we'd gone to get some Peruvian chicken. And I very arrogantly and presumptuously uh, said to my wife, you know what? I think we must have the genetic mutation that we're we're completely impervious mm -hmm. to COVID because here we are, you know, year three. We've traveled, we've done it all. I mean, we weren't uh, careless, but uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it, it's ever going to affect us. Well, you know the old story: tell God your plans so He can laugh, or whatever the expression is. Well, apparently God must have been listening because three days later, my son said, you know, I don't feel so well. Then he took the test. He got COVID. Then I got it next. And then my wife got it. And then my daughter got it. So we've all now had it for the first time. So one of the annoying things about getting COVID, and I know you you say you had four shots and you still got COVID. Yeah. Um, I too, three shots, still got COVID. Uh, but one of the annoying things about getting COVID is there it's not, we, we put so much time and effort into the vaccines, the vaccines, the vaccines. By this point, there should just be a pill. You take COVID, here's your pill, or you get COVID, here's your pill, you're cured. Like all the money, all the energy that went into these vaccines, which aren't doing anywhere near what they were promised to do, uh, could have been spent elsewhere and we wouldn't have to suffer. 
uh, through COVID. And, and, there, and there could be no death toll of COVID if we had their effective medication, but we don't. So I would love to see more questions of Anthony Fauci along those lines, but very few reporters get access to him. And um, those who do don't go there. Now, I will credit Dan Diamond of The Washington Post, who just did an interview with Fauci and asked him about one of the subjects nobody wants to talk about, which is why the hell Fauci just gave Peter Daszak at EcoHealth Alliance another $600,000 grant. And really, it's a $3.3 million grant, but it has to be renewed each year. So right now, it's over $600,000. This is the group. This is the group that did gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China with the so-called bat lady. Peter Daszak's the one who did it. And then crazily, the, the WHO put him on their commission to investigate the origins of COVID. Was it from a lab? Hmm. Do you think we're going to get an honest answer from Peter Daszak or was it from a market? Um, do we have that soundbite? We pulled it from the 60 Minutes piece. Um, do we have a team? Yeah, okay. Well, watch, just to refresh your memory, here's a little bit of what happened when Peter Daszak got featured on a 60 Minutes piece a year plus ago. I'm on the WHO team for a reason. And, and you know, if you're going to work in China on coronaviruses and try and understand their origins, you should involve the people who know the most about that. And for better or for worse, I do. He says for the worse. team did look into the leak theory during a visit with lab scientists and deemed it extremely unlikely. We met with them. We said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually. Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No. But you're just taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit <laughs> to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. But weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence. They punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. Issue. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. What a shock. He investigated himself and found no wrongdoing, Gad. Now we've just given him more money, and Dan Diamond asked Fauci about it. Okay, here was his response as to why he did it. Well, you can't arbitrarily decide. I just don't want to fund EcoHealth because people don't like them, he added, um, saying that he has an open mind about the possibility of a lab leak, but believes that there is far more evidence that the virus was a natural occurrence, a narrative he's been pushing from the beginning and was first transmitted to a human from an animal. Again, Gad, even though they've tested 80,000 animals and have yet to find one that's got this uh, this strain. So Fauci continues on and on when asked if he's become a polarizing figure. He says, well, when I say I should get vaccinated, that, that we should get vaccinated because it saves lives and someone says, no, am I the polarizing figure? Or is it the person who's saying something that's completely untrue who's creating the polarization? He'll never, he'll never admit the truth. He'll never come clean and he will continue funding this kind of research until, I don't know, House Republicans make him stop? I don't know. Right. Uh, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, yeah, one of the th most difficult things to make a human do is to admit that they are wrong or to alter their opinion on something. As a matter of fact, there's a great book, a somewhat academic book that basically argues that our uh, 
ability to reason did not evolve to seek truth, but rather to win arguments, right? I mean, it's a, it's a compelling uh, theory because it basically speaks to, to Fauci's weaknesses, right? I mean, he simp there is no amount of evidence that might come that might allow him to exhibit some epistemic humility. If, you, if we just uh, backtrack to when you asked me about uh, Tom and Giselle, if you remember, I began by saying, well, we're going to enter into speculative land there, right? Why did mm -hmm. I say that? Because as a actual scientist who has epistemic humility, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's what Confucius says is true wisdom, right? Many, many thousands of years ago. So the problem with Fauci is that he's never exhibited that kind of epistemic humility. He's always come in with the full assuredness of his white lab coat, his God complex, and that has led us down some very uh, you know, dark policy-making decisions. And so I think you you had alluded before we went on the break that there is a expression in Arabic that I've introduced on a on another show. Uh, I can maybe mention it here. There's, yeah. the, the Arabic expression is which basically means his smell is coming out. Which it it what it's what it what it's supposed to capture is when someone overstays their welcome, right? So for example, if you invite some people to to dinner at your house, and you know, it's expected that probably by about 10 o'clock, people start leaving because you have young children and so on. And if you start giving them all sorts of cues that maybe it's time to pack it in, and now it's 1230 and they're still there, mm -hmm. in Arabic, you would say, his smell is coming out. Well, there is nobody in the world who has ever exuded more of a metaphorical pungent smell than Fauci. <laughs> the guy has been in office since Baruch Spinoza was a philosopher in the 16th century. So maybe it's time for you to leave, man. Yes, take a cue for the love of God. We talked about this before with John Stossel, my friend. If you eat dinner at his house and it's 10 o'clock, he will literally stand up and just excuse himself. Like he'll leave. He'll leave you. Wow. You'll still be sitting at his table. <laughs> He's upstairs in bed. You're like, I guess it's over. It's I guess it's over. So now that's become the Stossel and Doug and I use it liberally. Um, one of the other things I've I've seen you talking about that I want to get to as well as what's happening in Iran. Uh, this is pretty extraordinary. I mean, this country, I went back and looked because I remember this happened as recently as 2020. The U.N. Human Rights Council was praising Iran for its human rights, for the great strides it had been making, in particular when, when it came to treating their most vulnerable communities. Like, you've got to be kidding me, right? This is a country that we're pretending we can negotiate a deal with on, on nukes and that they will honor it as an honorable you know, regime that's going to live up to whatever promises we extract from them. You know, Trump walked away from it, but Biden's trying to bring it back. So there's a situation over there right now where a young girl, they, as of August, they started to really crack down in more authoritarian ways on the hijab and the way women dress and so on. And a young woman didn't wear it. And she was spotted uh, without the hijab. And she was arrested. And she was very badly beaten and went into um, the, the hospital and died. And now the Iranian authorities are denying that she was beaten, but it's very clear that she was. And this is spreading. Young women, young women, extraordinary, are starting to protest in Iran. I mean, it's like they're they're still cutting people's heads off. That's still a, a, an acceptable form of capital punishment there. Um, and so I wonder what your thoughts are on it, because um, it, and after the death of this young woman, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember her last name. I know it's a, a uh, I think I think Mazah Amini. 
Amini. Yeah. Okay. Um, has really sparked something that's kind of exciting for those of us in the West, but also seems ultimately futile because everything there is. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I've said before, and it's worth repeating here that the most dangerous force in nature to, from a man's psychology is female sexuality, right? People are not afraid of tanks or men are not afraid of tanks or other men with big muscles. What men are most afraid of a kind of in a diabolical sense is the empowerment of female sexuality. So in all of these regimes, the way that you maintain control is by controlling female sexual emancipation. And one of the ways that you do that is by forcing them to, you know, to wear certain sartorial guidelines, right? You have to wear the hijab. You have, in some cases, it's the niqab. In some cases, it's the burqa. And so it amazes me, Megan, that, you know, the Western intelligentsia and the Western feminists actually have argued, this is not God sat satire, I'm actually literally repeating what they say, that the niqab and the burqa and the hijab are actually symbols of feminist empowerment because it liberates women from the male gaze, right? Remember, we used to hear about the male gaze with second wave uh, feminism, right? So by Mm -hmm. removing and erasing the identity of women by hiding them under a burqa, well, then you are protecting them from the male gaze. Uh, And of course, as someone who comes from the Middle East, I know every single justification that has been produced, whether it be culturally or religiously, to justify why women should be you know, uh, cloaked in all these different, uh, you know, sartorial guidelines. One of which is, you know, a woman is like a jewel and therefore don't you want a jewel to be covered up so that nobody can steal her and alluding to the fact that if you don't wear the hijab, then men won't be able to control themselves. And then if they rape you, well, it was your fault because you showed your hair. Look, I've been warning against this for probably 20 years. Montreal, used to be where I live, used to be a city where for the first 25 years that I lived here, I saw a hijab once. Today, if I walk out of my house, out of the first 20 women that I cross paths with, 10 of them are wearing hijabs. Now, some people will say, well, it's nothing. It's just an innocent uh, cloth piece. Why are you getting so triggered? No, that the symbolism of that cloth is actually something very powerful. And this is why I stand with the incredibly courageous women of Iran, because they they are the true feminists, not the whiners at Oberlin College. Yes, that that's exactly right. Here's a picture of the young schoolgirls with their with their fists in the air, holding up the finger. Um, just this is an incredible act of defiance. We also have uh, some sound of them chanting uh, out in the street. Uh, seven or eight, both are powerful. Watch this. They're pushing back an Iranian official who showed up at their school where they took off their hijabs. These girls are amazing. Look at them. All these young girls pushing back this Iranian man who wants them to scarf it up. Throwing water at him. God, good for them, Gad. It's so it's encouraging, right? You want to stand up and cheer, like go girls. But what are we gonna do, right? There, there, there's pressure on our administration to say, like, 
you know, they, they, they issued some statement like, oh, it's appalling what happened to this young girl. Oh, that's well, that's going to make a big difference. What about just the, the you know, pulling this negotiation, which is a fail already? It's not going anywhere. It hasn't been just fail. Like, so pull it. Do something at least symbolic in support of girls who are actually being murdered by the patriarchy, unlike women over here who get pissed off that, you know, online can be a negative experience sometimes. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, but ne- never mind. Of course, the administration, the, the governments can certainly help the, the, the revolution progress. But, you know, I'll speak about my ecosystem, which is academia. Where are all my fellow academics who are so progressive and such feminists? Why don't I see them on social media supporting this cause? Right? I mean, it, 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 it behooves one. I mean, how could one explain such uh, cowardice, such hypocrisy, right? Uh, just last week, uh, Megan, I had arguably the the face of sort of the the, the revolution in the West. Her name is uh, Masih Aninajad. Uh, Masih in Arabic, uh, it means the Christ. Like, I mean, literally Christ. So she came on my show and uh, subsequent to my show, she went on Bill Maher. The only reason I'm plugging her now is because you should, you know, think about following her social media account because she receives all of these clips from these unbelievably heroic girls and what they're doing in in uh, in Iran. And again, let me contextualize. Imagine the average person in the West who gets afraid and gets you know uh, into all sorts of panicky, you know, su- thumb sucking fetal position because you know two blue haired people who are super woke might get offended. How should we contextualize this in comparison to these young 15, 16, 17 year old girls? who are doing what they're doing on the imminent threat of being killed, raped, beaten, that's true courage. That's what being a honey badger is. And I'm I'm so moved by them and I'm so invigorated by them. I hope that Westerners can can appreciate the kind of courage that it takes to, to do what they're doing right now. It's unbelievable. I can't help but notice the difference between these young women who could literally be killed for not putting on that headscarf. And these students we began the show with at NYU who claim that they've been subjected to unfair, awful treatment because their organic chemistry class is too hard or they want the other professor fired in Maine because she said there are two sexes like you want to smack them across their snotty little faces and say, grow up. There are people in this world with real problems. If you run out of them, direct your eyes overseas. Okay, if your life is so small that you literally have to focus on things like how many genders could there be LGBTQ five letters beyond it? Oh, you didn't say it right. I feel dehumanized. I feel attacked. Right. Look overseas, do some homework, study some history, put things in context. Try to realize what what a real problem looks like, Gad. It's so frustrating to me. This is quite a moment. Well, I I think I mean, notwithstanding the fact that you're obviously very outspoken critic of a lot of this nonsense. Many of the people who are at the forefront of fighting for, you know, the Western foundational values, it's no coincidence that many of us who are at the forefront come from those societies, are immigrants, because we've sampled from the buffet of all possible societies. We know that the Western tradition is an anomalous tradition. It's it's not the one that has defined human history. And therefore, when we come to the West and we see the system that's developed here in comparison to the one that we escaped from, we become the most vociferous defenders of the West. So whether it be Ayan Hirsi Ali or uh, you know uh, other other folks who are immigrants, 
that's really the reason why we are the ones who are you know most perplexed by the western apathy and cowardice because i think most westerners wake up and think that's the default system throughout the world throughout recorded history no it isn't it's an outlier and if you don't defend it you will lose it maybe slowly but you will lose it well, and not only that, you know, that we were talking about the hijab, we're talking about what's done to girls in some of these cultures. And Ion's a great example of that, right, from Somalia. And she was forced to undergo genital mutilation and left Islam and is a staunch critic of it. You can understand why. And um, she's been saying the same thing. She she wrote a whole book. We had her on about it in one of our earliest shows about the failure to assimilate by some of these Muslim immigrants in places like France and other countries in Europe. And you're now you're mentioning perhaps Canada as well, where they come, they do leave on the hijab. They the men expect that now of even the Western women who, you know, are not part of their culture, but are a part of the pre-existing culture in places like France and London elsewhere. And now it's finally, you know, for years and years and years, we had people like Angela Merkel telling us to be quiet and that we were bigots if anybody had an objection to that. And now you even have, you know, the French leader and others saying, OK, this is getting absurd. We're losing our entire culture. And by the way, Christina Maloney in Italy, this has been one of her big issues, too. Like, no, we have a culture. It's OK to fight for it. If you want to come here, great. But you need to assimilate. Look, uh, I've made that point on countless occasions. Uh, healthy relationships are built on reciprocity. Otherwise, they're parasitic, right? So if you expect me to go to Saudi Arabia or to Egypt or to Syria and dress accordingly so that I don't violate your cultural and religious sensibilities, and maybe I should do it if I want to be a a, a polite guest in your country, then why is it that we shouldn't expect the same of you when we open our borders to you? Isn't that what reciprocity is? Why is it that when I go to Saudi Arabia, I can't build a synagogue, but we should build mosques, you know, like we used to have uh, Starbucks's on every street corner, right? Why is it one way? So, of course, any sane politician should say, anybody is welcome to the West. You're Muslim, welcome, my brother and sister. As long as you leave the cultural and religious baggage that is antithetical to Western values at the door, if yes, come in. Let's build a better society together. If no, go back to Yemen. It's as simple as that. The Speaking of the Saudis, I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that now they are getting ready to make deep oil output cuts. Their, their OPEC, the alliance, is going, they just announced a 2 million barrels a day cut in oil production. Okay. That could drive our gas prices back up. And it's exactly the opposite of what President Biden said he was going to get for us or was trying to get when he went over there, essentially bent the knee, did the fist bump uh, with the prince despite saying he was going to make a pariah out of them, going to make a pariah out of them. But then gas was at $5 a gallon. And he goes over there and does a fist bump. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to get something. They're going to loosen the spigot there. And then we're going to help the gas prices. They haven't done anything. They, they didn't. They did not help. And now they're going the other way. It just shows America's weakening standing in the world. We, we don't have the muscle we used to. And what muscle we have, we misuse to the point where we're not respected. Remember, this is the same guy who wouldn't take Biden's calls. He kept calling and they wouldn't even pick up the phone for the sitting president of the United States. You know, uh, in, the, in the Middle East, there's an expression, uh, which I think is probably a universal one, 
might is right, right? The Middle East is very much of a hierarchical society, right? They are they are very clear delineated power dynamics, right? Men more, better than women, uh, humans better than animals, adults better than children, right? It's very, very hierarchical. There's what's called power distance index in the Middle East. So if you are the strong one, you are respected. Now, that doesn't mean that you should be a bully, right? Or the old expression, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Carry, uh, speak softly, but carry a big stick. It's part of human nature to respond to that. So now when you have an administration, and by administration, I pretty much mean most of Western countries that, that think that being kind and compassionate and acquiescing is always going to be viewed as a positive thing from our foes. You simply don't understand human nature 101. The reason why the Israelis exist in a very, very dangerous neighborhood is because they understand and internalize the might is right ethos, which is we want peace. We, we, they go out of their way to you know perform surgeries on, on Palestinian children. But if you attack us, we will attack you tenfold whatever you dished out on us. And regrettably, uh, most Western politicians have lost uh, the understanding of human nature, and I hope that they have found it back soon. Can, do you think that the Biden infirmity is playing into this dynamic? You know, given your area of expertise and also what you just yeah. said, your understanding of the region and the way, you know, people are viewed. I mean, I literally, his wonder. cognitive decline, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, the, the the mumbling, the shuffling, the forgetting, the being corrected by staffers and contradicted who override him all the time, being pushed around by the Easter Bunny, the wandering, the being lost all the time, both literally and figuratively, not knowing that a dead person is still dead, all of it. I mean, I definitely think that it plays into it, but I think it's the dreadful ideas that he and his administration hold that is really sending us down into the abyss of infinite lunacy. Hmm. Okay, uh, much more to get to. That's a, that's a dark note to leave it on, but uh, we, we've got a lot, a lot more with Gad, so we'll take a quick break and get back to the professor. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Because I know that the fascist Georgia Maloney is going to be taking over Canada because she holds on to some really radical ideas like belief in her religion, Christianity. She also believes in the sanctity of the family. She also believes that Italy should remain Italian, that sh they should protect their cultural values, their language, they shouldn't have open borders, all very dangerous ideas. So my wife and I are now only speaking in Italiano in the home because we know that our days are numbered, because we know that fascisti Giorgia Meloni is going to be taking over. <laughs> There it is. Welcome Did back to the Did you see the earlier show. part where I'm speaking in Italian? <laughs> we cut that because not everybody oh, okay. speaks it. 
And this is Professor okay. Gatsad doing one of his many comedy routines. Uh, as we mentioned in the intro, free speech is definitely one of your things. And uh, so I, I had to ask you about Elon Musk. Now it turns out he's basically been forced to settle his Twitter dispute. He was about to lose in Delaware court. And so the deal is going to go through. He's going to buy Twitter and the meltdown on the left and from within the Twitter ranks has been fairly delicious, but also just absurd. Um, people are really losing their minds. Here's just a couple from inside the company. Uh, living the plot of succession is effing exhausting, tweeted one. Um OK, let's see. Then there's someone who's a senior financial analyst at Twitter tweeting out many crying memes <laughs> with little girls crying. This is apparently indicative of his own feelings. Cue the layoffs. Somebody else worried. Uh, they think the stock's going to plummet. Another referred to Musk as a moron. But none of that compares to what happened outside the company, Gad, where you have um, Ben Collins, an NBC newser, saying, for those of you asking, Yes, I do think this site can and will change pretty dramatically if Musk gets full control over it. No, there's no immediate replacement. If it gets done early enough, based on the people he's aligned with, yes, it could actually affect midterms. The horror that Twitter will be used to help conservatives and free speech rather than to crack down on those two things, as it, he clearly admits it has been doing. And I'll give you one more. Joy Reid, uh, MSNBC host, uh, retweeted. Ben Collins's thread and then another uh, thread belonging to an author, Don Winslow, warning about the threat of Elon's ownership, saying, quote, if Musk gets control of Twitter and Zuckerberg has control of Facebook and CNN is under new Republican backed management, we have a massive problem and do not listen to anyone who tells you differently. That's what Winslow had said. She retweeted him They're They're in full meltdown. So what do they know that we don't know? Well, they know that anything that someone says that they disagree with is misinformation and disinformation. And so they're not fascist or authoritarian. They're only doing it for your feeble mind. They, they're only doing it because they need to protect you from those dangerous ideas that are contrary to theirs. By the way, this is a, the exact same uh, justification that every single authoritarian dictatorship has ever used, right? Even under, for example, we were talking earlier about Islam. In Islam, there's the concept of fitna. Fitna is when you create chaos and mischief in society. So the reason why we need to do horrifying thing X, Y, Z to you is because you're from another religion or you haven't adopted Islam as the real religion or you you drew a picture of Muhammad, or right? So every single dictatorship always justifies what they do via some sort of compassionate plea to them protecting you, right? So uh, if now Twitter will not be controlled by the bien pensant, as we say in French, the well-thinking, then other ideas might spread and we can't have that. And of course, I, I know that one of the topics that we may or may not get to is Sam Harris and some of his positions. Sam Harris is having a very bad day today because imagine if now Twitter wouldn't be able to suppress Hunter Biden's laptop stuff mm. or wouldn't kick out a sitting president of the United States off their platform. That wouldn't be good for a free society. We must not allow Elon Musk to take over for freedom. I would talk to I'll talk about Sam in, in one second, but I will say the other piece of that problem is the the universe is expanding rapidly in terms of what can be said to be in our best interests. You know, what 
what is outside the bounds of decency. And so our betters need to sort of correct it like there are two sexes, right? Like rigor is important in a classroom, like math is real, you know, like we should have honors societies. And so like all that is racist. I saw you did a big thing on it and I thought it was really good. Um, But just the universe of what's offensive is so big now. And so the freak out over who will be the police you know, the the word police is justified because these people have been using Twitter and so on to shame us all, to shadow ban people who say things like we think COVID came from a lab. Um, never mind misstepping on gender or race ideology. So let's contrast the 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 snowflakes. Uh, I hate to use that kind of now popular term of you know Twitter, the ones who are all freaking out that Elon Musk is going to take over. And let's contrast this with the following absolutist stance on free speech. Here I stand before you, a Jewish person who escaped execution in Lebanon, and I say this to you on Yom Kippur, the highest holiday in the Jewish faith. I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew their nonsense. There is nothing more offensive by definition than that, because number one, it's a profoundly documented historical fact, and number two, it involves the wholesale eradication of an entire people on an industrial scale level. So there's nothing that could be more offensive than denying that grotesque reality. But as a defender of freedom of speech, I support the right of these kinds of imbeciles, racists, and pigs to to spew whatever nonsense that they want. So when I see people whether it be Sam Harris or all of the the people who are freaking out over Elon Musk, taking the positions that they do, it really angers me because they're not true freedom-loving people because they are, to use the terms that I think I introduced to you in one of our previous conversations, they are consequentialists in their ethics, right? So Sam Harris basically says, well, it's okay to uh, uh, eradicate the story about Hunter Biden because to not have done so would have led to Donald Trump being potentially elected. So in this case, the consequences were too great. Whereas, of course, if you're deontological in in that particular pursuit, you say, no, there are certain foundational values that you could never violate. So you as a lawyer would, of course, agree that the, the tenet of presumption of innocence could never be violated. It can't be under a consequentialist rubric. So all of this nonsense exactly stems from the fact that these people are not true freedom-loving people. They are, in their heart, authoritarian. You know, that's really interesting. Got me thinking. Process matters. Due process matters. You can't abandon it for an ends justifies the means kind of thing. That's what the founders believed in our systems worked very well for a long time. And that is sort of, I see your point about Sam, who I like and I've had on the show. He definitely stepped in it, as he knows. He had to do a whole thing. Um, but I, I see your point because what he he really did think that the that the Hunter Biden laptop being suppressed was sort of an ends justifies the means kind of thing, yeah. and that Trump is just that big an existential threat to the country. And if you really believe Trump is a Hitler esque figure, you would share that view. I mean, you it would take something that extraordinary for me to say, forget due process. You know, forget all of the principles that we've built the country on. If Hitler's about to take office, we've got to break the rules. We we have to. And that's well, so that's ex- the mindset. Except let me give you another example from from, uh, you know, Jewish history, recent Jewish history. In 1961, the Mossad uh, tracked 
Adolf Eichmann, one of the butchers of the Nazi regime. And they sent out a Mossad team to Argentina, and they had two choices at that point. They could either execute him very quietly and met out justice, you know, very quietly and leave, and nobody would, would know anything about what happened. Or they could stick to their deontological principles, whereby even someone as diabolical as Adolf Eichmann deserves his due date in court. So at great personal and diplomatic risk, they whisked him out of Argentina, brought him back to Israel where he stood trial and then was executed. Mm -hmm. So no one is going to argue that seriously that Donald Trump is a more grotesque figure than Adolf Eichmann, and yet the Israelis stuck to their deontological principles. So maybe Sam Harris needs to go back and read one or two other philosophy books. We just ran a soundbite from a guy on CNN yesterday who said he is he's as great a danger, I think. I don't know if he said he's worse, but at least as great as Hitler. I mean, that's one of Trump's one of the reasons Trump is suing CNN now, because they put things like that on. It is lunacy. Oh my God. That's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. This is kind of lunacy too. I don't understand it, Gad, but you understand consumerism and you understand how the human mind works. There's breaking news in the Alec Baldwin case. They've, They've reached a settlement. Okay. Helena Hutchins was the cinematographer who was killed by Alec Baldwin when he fired that gun and had a real bullet in it. Alec Baldwin was also the executive producer of the movie. So a civil suit was filed against him and others. They've just settled it. Okay, we expected that. There's no no way out of liability. I'm sure the insurance company will pay it and then they'll move on. However, the settlement deal includes a requirement that they start up the production of Rust, the movie, again with all the principal actors, including Baldwin and Helena Hutchins's widower will executive produce the movie, wow. Gad. I said to the team, was he a movie producer before this? No, he's a lawyer. I think he's a lawyer at Latham and Watkins. I I don't understand this. I have nothing but empathy for this man. But I don't understand a widower who lost his wife like this in the middle of this movie, wanting the movie to see fruition and come to the big screen and to take the helm of it as the executive producer and work with Alec Baldwin. To finish up the, I like my mind is kind of blown. So I'm, I mean, I'm. This is the first time I'm hearing of this. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just broke this morning, it. right? Oh, I, I see. Uh, I mean, the only thing I can think of, Megan, is would it be that you know it's the argument that at least her she has she didn't lose her life in vain. At least that which ended up killing her came to fruition, and that people will consume that movie. Do you think that that's the argument as to why he got involved and so on? I don't know. Why would he become the executive producer? Why would he want Alec Baldwin back in there doing it? What are they going to do with the scene in the church that turned deadly for his wife? You know, does that does that make the movie? Do they reshoot that? They're going to start back up this production with it's a it's a Western with guns and ammo and people who are responsible for that, like the armorer. I mean, I I'm stunned. People are about to be criminally charged, according to the local D.A., for their behavior in connection with this, including potentially Baldwin. <laughs> and in the meantime, he's going to wow. be working with all the same people doing the same thing. It makes no sense to me. That So this is this was done at, at the civil level. This is not a criminal. Yeah, uh, no, the criminal charges have yet to be brought. But the I, d- I local see. DA just announced last week uh, wow. that they need more money to hire local prosecutors to help them because they expect to bring as many as four prosecutions criminally. 
Yeah, I must say I'm equally stumped. I mean, I guess maybe I'll add one thing. It amazed me when I saw uh, Alec Baldwin in, in the various interviews that he's given, uh, you know, relating to that story, how lacking in contriteness he had, right? How lacking in, you know, there's there's a there's a humility that comes with the fact that, you know, whether it was accidental or wh- whomever is culpable for the thing, I mean, you should feel rather, you know, contrite in the fact that a life was lost during that particular shooting. And yet, the the way that he handled himself suggests that i mean he he borders on being psychopathic i don't like to use that word uh you know lightly but uh i think that if you or i had you know been the one who whose hand you know caused that uh, death we probably would have behaved very differently in those interviews don't you think how would you go back on that set even as alec baldwin even if you resolve every question in his favor you know he was as responsible as you could possibly be the bottom line he did kill a woman he killed her um i don't understand what kind of a human being could go resume the production what is it about money they think this is a way to honor her because she was involved in the production to begin with i mean like all we heard about for months was how traumatic this was for everyone involved. And now they're going to go revisit the exact scene of trauma, relive it again and complete it to make money. I don't I don't know, Gad. I just feel like Hollywood people. I don't understand them. I don't understand this. And in no world did I have on my bingo card that Helena Hutchins husband would be the executive producer of this very film and see it through to the end. A human nature is a bizarre thing. All right, let me ask you about something else bizarre that's in the news today, and that is Kanye West. He went to Paris Fashion Show, Paris Fashion Week, wearing a White Lives Matter sweatshirt. Candace Owens was there with him. She wore one as well. Then an editor of Vogue, then a bunch of people started to attack him. Apparently his longtime business partner quit, saying this is so offensive. Um, an editor at Vogue attacked him saying this is dehumanizing and deeply offensive. He went after her saying, you're not really a fashion person and you know it. And they kind of got personal. Now he's tried to bury the hatchet by saying, oh, we had a dinner and it's all good. But there's a shitstorm raining down on Kanye West. And it seems to me and they're saying it's he's promoting white supremacy by wearing the white lives matter. Of course. All right. The sweatshirt it seems to me it takes a lot of guts to be a black man in America and try to make a point. He's clearly trying to make it a, make a point. He's not saying black lives don't matter. Um, and I wonder what you think is in the psychology of a guy like Kanye West, who's willing to take a risk that big. I, I think because he's got a strong personhood, notwithstanding some of his kind of uh, bizarre, erratic behavior, he has a strong sense of self. He's not going to be cowed by groupthink and the hive mindset. I admire him for that. He certainly is a honey badger. I mean, it amazes me, again, to to link it back to our earlier conversation about the Iranian girls. We are getting all triggered about a black man wearing a shirt, which is somewhat trolling, you know, white lives matter. Mm -hmm. Contextualize that with the young 15-year-olds who are facing down a butchery of a regime where they could whisk you away and gang rape you before they beat you into, you know, senseless. That's what we're talking about, that some rapper you know, trolled people wearing White Lives Matter. It Again, it amazes me. People need to travel a bit more to contextualize how well they have it in the West, and then maybe they wouldn't be so easily triggered. The woman he went after at Vogue, the editor, actually called the sweatshirt violent. It's violent. <laughs> of course. Right? This is where we go. And you, again, you look at these Iranian girls, this girl didn't have her hijab on, her headscarf on, and 
she was beaten to death. So we really need to be more careful with our language. Kanye wearing that sweatshirt may have been offensive to this woman, and she's more than entitled to say that. But when we co-opt real terms like violence and use them in situations like this, it just waters them down into meaningless and we need them to have meaning. Exactly right. And and by the way, in the parasitic mind, I talk about this issue when I talk about the ethos of victimology. And I basically argue that in the same way that when you set a thermostat, that it, it will either release heat or release air conditioning to for it to adhere to the temperature that you've set it at. This is what we're doing with victimology. There's a certain level of victimology that we must have. And if our society is no longer racist and bigoted and so on, then we will manufacture full victimhood so that we can achieve the level of victimology that we best need. And this is what mm-hmm. happened with Juicy Smollett. That's what happened with all of these idiots that fake their victim attacks. It's grotesque. You, you need to see what happens to people who truly live lives of victimhood before you start whining about your pampered lives. Right, that's right. Go on something other than TikTok or Instagram to figure out what's happening in the world. Gad Sad, thank you for being one of the great fighters on the side of reason. It's such a pleasure to have you and to know you. Thank you so much. Tomorrow on the show, our friend Charles Cook is back with some big professional news. And we're also going to be joined by Selena Zito on the Pennsylvania midterm races. We're going to be doing a series now for all the states on people who are experts. So you'll know what's happening by the time we get there. Meantime, we've launched this weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at uh, MeganKelly.com. And Tracy Valoldo wrote me from Miami saying she loves it. I've listened to all your podcasts. I don't usually need to update myself on the news, but I enjoy all the tidbits, especially Strudwick. Have you tried a squirt bottle each time he chews Thunder's ears? Make sure it's just a firm no. Oh, Tracy, of course, I've been spraying Strudwick in the face nonstop. You won't be surprised to learn it doesn't work. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today.